You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is the A Cuppa and a Yarn podcast. Hello and welcome to A Cuppa and a Yarn from the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. My name's Michelle Alexandrovix Lovegrove. My guest this episode is Shelley Rays, a durable woman from the Atherton Tablelands in Cairns and a respected Indigenous strategist and service provider. Shelley has more than 25 years' experience in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Reconciliation landscape and was named an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2012. She's also the daughter of Frank Rays, whose 1973 Melbourne Cup win put him in the record books as the first Aboriginal jockey to win the trophy. I hope you enjoy a cuppa and a yarn with Shelley Rays. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania, Manania. My mob are durable, so we're in the Atherton Tablelands, um, about 70 kilometres southeast of Cairns, so northern Queensland. Okay, you've been in New South Wales for a long time now, haven't you? I have been. I've been in New South Wales for about 24, 25 years full time. Mm. So I've been um, living on um, Koori country for a really long time. I feel pretty blessed for that too, though. I've always felt really welcomed mm. and very grateful to everyone that's been happy for me to work and live here. Mm, absolutely. Talking about where you were born, where you grew up and your family, can we have a little bit of a chat maybe about uh, where you spent some of your, your formative years? So, you know, maybe up until about the age of 10. Where did you live then? Well, I wasn't born on country and mm. I didn't grow up on country. Um, my father um, was a mad horseman, known as a bit of a horse whisperer, as were his brothers. And he pursued at a really young age, at 14, um, a career to be a jockey. Mm. And so with that aspiration, he moved to Sydney and to Melbourne. And by the time I was born, my family had moved to Melbourne to follow that racing dream. So I was born in Melbourne and I grew up in Melbourne. And the first time I moved away from Melbourne, um, about 24 years ago, as I said, was to Sydney. And that was to help establish the business Arilla in um, New South Wales. Now, with your dad, you know, and I, I know that you've probably been asked a million times over your entire life a, a, about him, but of course he was the, the first Aboriginal man to win the Melbourne Cup. I did see a beautiful picture of you, which is, you know, available on the internet, sitting with him or is he sitting on his lap? Yes, looking. probably. There's a lot of those around the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was lovely. With it, I think it was the day after he won and, you know, you, you were both looking at it and you were cute as a button and he was just, look, just looked amazing, you know, so proud, big smile, etc. Do you have strong memories of that time? Well, I was only six at the time mm. and so I wouldn't say that they are gloriously strong memories I remember what I remember Mm -hmm. but my brother and sister are nine and ten years older than me and they remember different things because they were older and more mature and were taking different things from the experience too so we all have we all come together sometimes and talk about it as we've been asked to do and um, you know through interviews or you know the Victorian Racing Club want to do something celebratory so we come together to sort of talk it through as a family Um, So it's interesting that we all have a slightly different lens and mine obviously is as a young six-year-old 
and um, being kind of amused almost at the fuss because, you know, I grew up when uh, my dad was already a well-known jockey. He was one of the leading jockeys in Melbourne when I was a tiny weenie thing when I was born. He'd won many major races across the country and I was naive enough to think that everybody's dad rode a horse (laughs) and um, thought everybody must have had a pony because I did and why didn't everybody else have pony rides at their birthday parties? So, you know, I was an incredibly naive little girl as most kids are. They just think the world is how you see it Mm -hmm. and it's the same for everyone. And when he won the Melbourne Cup, I have to say, it was the first time I realised that he was kind of different to other people's dads because the fuss was off the radar compared to any other race that he had won, um, compared to any kind of interest the school had had, my primary school had had about dad and my friends as well. So I thought, gosh, this Melbourne Cup thing is a big deal. As time went on and, you know, as you get more mature and you sort of see things with a with a more mature head you realise how incredibly important it was, not just significant because there was a lot of fuss but how important it was for the family and um, for other people who look to role models for Mm. inspiration and I'm incredibly proud of him, my whole family are and the kind of legacy that he's left behind, not just because he's won the Melbourne Cup and the first Aboriginal man to do so, as far as we're aware. But also because he he gave, has given many people, not just the family, these values of tenacity, of strength, of um, honesty, um, um, passion, um, this notion that that you try hard and you try as hard as you can and then you try harder even more. And they're the kind of values that I think have kept us all in good stead, me, my sister, my brother, but the broader family, I hope, have also learned some pretty great values from him as a remarkable person. Was he a gentle man? He was really gentle. It's funny Mm. you should ask me that Mm. because a lot of reporters and a lot of people who knew him well would always talk about his gentleness. Mm. He was intrinsically shy. I think that comes with that notion of gentleness. He didn't like media attention. He didn't like the kind of attention he got after the Melbourne Cup or any other big race. Um, He he was just invested in a love of horses, Mm. a great respect for horses, and also um, that strength of character and tenacity for him to do well. Um, But the the other stuff that went with it wasn't really his thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my mum will tell you more stories about that than, than my memory holds, but... He was incredibly gentle and a really lovely father. I've looked at a lot of pictures of him and you can actually see it in his face. You, you can see it in his eyes. Just, you know, this is on a computer screen. It shines through without actually, you know, seeing the person is the gentleness. So, And also someone who devotes their life to a particular animal, like to horses. You've got to be gentle and patient and have boundaries because they're pretty smart animals. You grew up with horses, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So lucky. Yeah. Again, you don't realise how lucky you are when you're a kid, but so lucky. I had my own pony. My sister, my brother did too and, wow. and even more. And we had this beautiful little hobby farm about an hour away from Melbourne with the Yarra River running through it. Dad built that house on that farm and built the corrals that held the horses he was great with his hands and we would take those horses and swim through the Yarra and there's nothing quite 
more beautiful than being on the back of a horse while it's swimming. It's a beautiful sensation and it's lovely to watch. So yes, we were we were all really lucky. Your brother and sister, you said they're quite a bit older than you. Where are they now? They're both in Melbourne okay. um, with their little families, yeah. Mm. And um, they've always lived in Melbourne. I was the only one that flew the coop. I would have been in my early 20s yeah, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a big move. Um, I'd never lived out of home before for any significant length of time. Mm. So it was a bit of a big deal. When I first moved to Sydney, I was living with my cousin and his partner. And I sort of came up part time. And then eventually it just got a bit boring having to travel from one place to another. Mm. And um, I was getting more serious. And my cousin was getting more serious about the work we were doing together at the time. And so it made sense for me to permanently move here. That was the start of, a, of your company, Arilla, wasn't it? Well, the company time? was started by my cousin, Darren mm. O'Young. Mm. And um, he started the business in Sydney, established it in Sydney, I should say, and asked me to join him probably about a year, I think, um, if memory serves me correctly, about a year after he started establish, establishing it in Sydney. Either way, though, he had some great runs on the board. He had some great clients and he was doing really interesting things and focusing Arilla on employment because that was his background. And um, when I came up from Melbourne to Sydney to help him establish it, we continued to do those sort of things. And I learnt so much from him and so much from his networks as well. I'm very grateful to all of them. So as a young kid cutting my teeth... I felt really fortunate that I was surrounded by amazing people. And then it was a short time after, relatively short time, that I found out that he was terminally ill. And when he shared that information with me, I was mortified. Um, But it wasn't long after that that we ended up closing the business in order to just concentrate on what one needs to do to care for someone who's so unwell. So I really shut down for a very short period of time and well, what I would consider a short period of time. Mm. Um, it was a long time of grieving. And, uh, and then I uh, eventually, when I got my head above water and Darren's mother, Stella O'Young and brother, Lyle, and I got together to talk about what do we do with Arilla? Um, should we continue, should we not? Who wants to continue that? Who wants to remain involved? it was decided that I was the only one that was interested in doing that and keeping that name alive. Um, And so with their blessing, that's what I did. Mm. Um, Having said that, though, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to. I felt passionate about keeping his name and the business name alive because it was doing important work and I could see that it could continue to do great work and have even greater impact. But I was just so grief-stricken and I didn't really know if I wanted to do it without him. So it took a long time of me pretending to work, pretending to sort of, you know, do all the things that one should be doing when they're running a business when really I was just sort of playing on the fringes, trying to get my head together and get, get into the right space. Eventually, though, I got there. It took a long time, but I got there in the end. You were clearly very close. Cousin, yeah, yeah, really close. Yeah. yeah, very close. Yeah, like um, brother cousin. Yeah, yes, brother. absolutely. I've got a lot of cousins, um, mm. a very big family, like most Aboriginal families on my dad's side. 
So, you know, you're spoilt for choice when it comes to great cousins. Oh, absolutely. But I was very, very close to Darren, (laughs) that is true. (laughs) And it's really great because you can play favourites, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are special relationships and they can be different relationships than, you know, a... um, a bloodline brother, perhaps. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is a cover and a yarn. There's qu- still quite a bit of mention available anywhere, if you if you care to Google it, about the newspapers the day after he won and his cultural identification and the bigger mission of his Aboriginality. Clearly, at the age of six, that probably wouldn't have touched you. But when you look back at it now considering your path, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it was a different period of time. Mm. I think we'd all agree that um, where we are today is very different to where we were in the early 70s. Mm. Um, Indigeneity was not talked about as much, as accepted half as much, Mm. and certainly not celebrated the way it is today. And like many other Aboriginal families... There were certain decisions that were made, I would imagine, I would Mm. imagine, about keeping the family together, about staying strong, about not wanting to be treated any differently or marginalised because of your Aboriginality. Who knows? I mean, Mm. all of these things are very common amongst families in that period of time. There's also a Filipino line in my history as well. And the family um, often referred to their Filipino side more than their Aboriginal side. That, as I said, made perfect sense to me and it still does today. And I often wonder if my father was alive today, um, what kind of conversations he and I would be having and how he would feel. In fact, I'm quite sure I know how he would feel. He would be incredibly enthusiastic and overwhelmed by the great deal of support that there seems to be by comparison of that time for... Aboriginality and the place, the special place that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have within this country. I think it's an enormous shame that he didn't live at a time and didn't live long enough to be able to enjoy that Mm. because there was a lot of pride invested in him and who he was and um, a lot of pride invested in family and what family meant to him. So I'd loved for him to be around to be able to see that for himself. The sense I got, though, from, you know, bits and pieces that I was reading was that, you know, but it was never actually stated, was that it was not an omission of the family but an omission of writers and newspaper writers and editors at the time. That's absolutely right. Mm. But I note that none of the family had corrected them. Ah, yeah, fair enough. So I do think that their response was was or rather their Mm. take on it was in response to how the public and the media Mm. were driving that attitude so you know that 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 was their take on the situation did that sort of play any role or anything along those lines for the path that you were going to lead in terms of reconciliation i guess i feel really passionately that australia has been built on the back of an amazing group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, mm-hmm. um, not just their hard work and toil that we all know about, who have, you know, created these um, great sectors right across the country, urban, rural and urban areas. But I also feel really passionately that the broader Australian community don't know 
the detail behind that and don't appreciate our shared history and therefore don't understand the context of um, where Aboriginal people have come from and where they are today. And without understanding that context, I think it makes it difficult for them to contribute mm. to that. And while the nation talks a lot about closing the gap between us, mm. and while the nation enjoys involvement in the reconciliation space, a thousand wraps in place at the moment across the Australian workforce, and as, as I understand it, it covers around 35% of Australia's workforce. We still, I think, um, have something that gets in the way of us making real progress, and that is the broader Australian community's lack of information and context mm. about Aboriginal peoples, our communities and our shared history. And in the, the things I've read about you, and I've got you know, some of your writing here as well that I was reading, um, unconscious bias, uh, unconscious bias, uh, not questioning not, or not being able to or even understanding that they might need to uh, questioning their own values and beliefs and thoughts yeah. about Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, I have a view and look, there's many Aboriginal people that have heard me bang on about this for a long time but I really feel strongly about mm. it that, that when you put the term Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander on top of something you start talking about First Nations, reconciliation, reconciliation action plans, etc. When you start putting a black face on something there are really good-natured people, non-Indigenous people, that start to get nervous. Yeah, they freeze They sometimes. freeze. Yeah, yeah. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing, yep. doing the wrong thing. I don't want to offend that person. I'm sh I should know the answer to that question and I don't. Mm. Uh, they start to walk on eggshells. And so the way that I describe my work is I remove the eggshells. I give organisations and the staff within them the confidence but also mm. the skills to be able to work in that space better. Is it addressing unconscious bias? Yes, it is. But I really feel strongly too that unconscious bias is just a nice word for racism. Mm -hmm. We should be calling it what it is. Mm. And uh, we should also be working with people who are brave enough to call it what it is, look at it straight in the face and then work together to improve those circumstances. And I feel fortunate that I work with a whole range of organisations across the country who feel just as passionately about that as I do. Mm. As a result, I work with them to help them manoeuvre themselves in that area in such a way that they can make informed decisions, mm. they can have more informed discussions and they can genuinely contribute to closing that gap. How important do you think it is with the companies that you work with, or any companies indeed, that there is that, that top level investment in this type of training, attitude, addressing issues? Because, you know, if, you, if your leaders are there, surely it's going to help the um, staff to be there too. Yes, absolutely. And for, it's for that reason that I do, specifically I do cultural competency, and uh, mm. cultural bias, whatever you like to call it. Mm. I do specific sessions for leaders mm. and I'm the only one that does in the country. So they're targeted at boards, CEOs, chairs, prime ministers, ministers, the whole gamut of people who have a very clear leadership role or think they might have a leadership role but aren't quite sure what that is and want to tease that out a little bit. And they're incredibly popular. We're taking bookings now for seven months from today. And so I'm sharing information around 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures and practices and so on, but having a very, very keen focus on having a leadership lens over that information. And uh, they are really popular. And then it was three years ago that I launched Arilla Digital, which is a online version of that work mm. for broader audiences. It was at the same time that I was developing that, that KPMG had approached me and asked me if I was interested in um, selling some shares in Arilla and joint venturing the business with them. I was particularly interested at the time because building this digital product was nearly killing me. It was really, really hard, mainly because I wanted to do it in a particular kind of way. I didn't want it to be a stock standard experience for anyone. I want it to be an amazing, impactful experience and that doesn't come around very easily. It takes a lot of hard work to build something that's from scratch that really is impactful. So uh, it was attractive to me for that reason and so one thing led to another and I sold minority shares in Arilla to KPMG to get access to expertise that I didn't have. Arilla remains to be Arilla uh, as it always has been with the same values and does the same work and, and even more interesting things because we have access to amazing expertise but, um, and we get amazing office space which is where we are today. Um, but Arilla is still very much focused on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander outcomes and the kind of outcomes that are truly impactful. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, you're listening to A Cup of Yarn. You mentioned today, you know, the, the removing eggshells bit. How? How do you do that? How do you remove... Look, because I agree with you 100%. You know, good people sort of go, oh... And, and you can tell. They, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They're, they're scared to put a step wrong and so therefore do nothing. That's very true. Yeah. And most of the stuff that I talk about with them, um, either in our leadership sessions or our general audience mm. sessions, is information that one could Google at any time. So, you know, truth be known, it's not new information. I think what's, what's new in relation to what Arilla does is how we deli- deliver mm. the information mm. and that's what makes it truly impactful. Uh, we don't have a stock standard approach. There's not two organisations that have the same experience and we deliver it in such a way that we, um, you know, I expose myself an awful lot culturally and personally in order to get really strong messages and truthful conversations and personal stories across to enable people to understand the content in completely different ways. And all of the feedback that we have from those sessions uh, tell us that it's those personal stories And that ability for me and willingness for me to expose myself in that way that makes all the difference for them. So even though that's really hard for me to do and I am literally spent at the end of one of those sessions um, and it takes a lot for me to pull myself back together culturally, emotionally, Mm. spiritually, all of those things, I do it time and time again because that's what works and I'm completely driven by creating an impact. So I know it's your business and it's what you do, but, but why? why? Why do you do this? Why are you, you're putting yourself on the line and you, you're playing in this big space, you know, with the Microsofts and all that sort of stuff, and I think it's great that you are, but why? 
I feel it's probably the same reason as to why I did the digital version mm. um, and I pushed back on that thinking that it wouldn't be as impactful and it's not impactful, why would I do it? Mm. The reason why I do what I do is because I just feel like if I don't, then that information is not heard and if that information is not heard or that experience is not had by people then there will continue to be cohorts of leaders in particular who continue to walk with eggshells mm -hmm. and not really understand what the space looks like and what their role is. There's lots of fantastic cultural competency training providers out there, amazing, but we do have a bit of a niche and I feel very passionate that this niche needs to be covered and mm. look, the ultimate goal is one day to walk away and feel as though we don't need to do what we do anymore, mm. that it's not necessarily necessary, it's not needed, that people are walking the walk and walking the talk and really matching sentiment with action and they're doing it all in their own steam because they've learnt so much and they uh, have gained a degree of confidence to do that. And they've built solid, fantastic partnerships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in order to do it. So how does it make you feel then when you see people uh, come out of, of that work and, and those trainings and lights are going off and globes are buzzing? And It'd be a fantastic feeling, I'd imagine. It's a fantastic feeling mm. um, because you know that you have had an impact and you know that the penny has dropped. You can see it. Yes. You can feel it and you can see it. And... That really keeps you going. Um, so then I go home and I generally fall apart. Mm. I probably have two glasses of red wine instead of one. I try and pull myself together again and because, as I said, it's emotionally taxing and the cultural and emotional investment is huge, I do it all again because of that impact. And you can, like I said, w you can walk away from those situations and feel as though you've really affected someone's life, not just gave them a good experience, not just made their day worthwhile, mm. not just made them feel like, well, I've got a busy diary and that was probably a good use of my time. Mm. Far more than that. You can see that you have changed people's lives mm. and I get a multitude of emails and phone calls and gifts from people that outline, pour their hearts out to me to describe to me what kind of an impact that information has had on them and the way in which it was delivered and even more beautifully, the kind of people that they've chosen to share that information with, which is joy to my ears, mm. that they've taken those stories and they've taken that information and they've harnessed how they feel about that and shared that with other people, their children, their partners, their families. And I think that's fantastic. And it's that effect, that spiralling out that uh, you can reap so many more benefits yes. from that. Yes, and I remember too, just recently, um, the Victorian Racing Club um, celebrated my father at Melbourne Cup Day mm -hmm. and I got lots of lovely emails from people, random things, and I'd put stuff on LinkedIn as well and lots of lovely comments there too of people wanting to share their story of how my father's life had affected them and uh, lovely personal stories so it's a little bit similar in some ways I feel like 
you don't always know how many people that you impact. You don't always know how many people you touch. But I'm in this lovely situation, unlike my father, where I have that direct contact with people and so I can see it. It, it. It's visceral. He's with you still. He's just he's just different now. But uh, if he was actually here, sitting here now, what, what do you think he'd say to you about, about all that you've done? And you've been inspired by him, clearly. I have been. I hope he would be proud of me. Mm. I hope so. But you know what? I've been just as inspired by my own mother too. She's an amazing, strong woman who mm. has taught me so much and was a great supporter to my father. My brother and sister too are great people who being nine and ten years older than me have shaped who I am as well so Mm. I feel like I'm pretty lucky. Yeah you are indeed and everybody's in Melbourne. Yes they are they're all in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get to see them as much as you'd like to? No and I never I don't get to go back on country either as Mm. much as I'd like to. Um, the last few times is a bit, it's been for funerals and yeah, too many Aboriginal people say that yes. but it is the truth and um, apart from being the CEO for real I'm also a partner of KPMG and both of those hats keep me pretty busy and keep me away from um, distances like Sydney to North Queensland which is a real shame. Hopefully that will change really soon because you do need to spend time with family Shelley, thank you so much for chatting with me for a cup or any yarn. We haven't even talked about your order of Australia or anything about that yet, but I think that uh, that all goes without saying. I mean, you're doing big work, you're doing good work. You're investing your whole heart and soul in it. You can, you can see that, you can feel it. What's next up? Any little plans you can share? My only plan is to continue to think about how we can broaden the impact mm-hmm. So what we do is a very visceral, as I said before, experience because we have I, I engage with people on a personal basis. Mm. That's part of the reason why I developed a Rela Digital so that the footprint can be widened. But I'd like to build on that more so that more people have access to the same information, albeit in a different format. People like to learn differently and mm. they want to learn in their own time. And so I hope that we can spread that information even wider than we have. I mean, Rela Digital's been really successful already. There are clients, KPMG, Lendlease, Starlight Foundation, Herbert Smith Rehills, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Fantastic clients already, but um, we have, you know, 23 million Australians, the majority of them who have no clue and no sense of who Aboriginal people are how how our communities tick, what our values are and what our shared history looks like and how they can contribute to making this an even better country to live in. And I'd really like them to do that. Mm-hmm.